Some of the strangest names have been given to people and things. One of the really strange names as far as a child's name was given 50 years ago or thereabouts. In 1972, there was a girl named Marijuana Pepsi Jackson. That's true. At the age of nine, Marijuana realized that her name was a very unusual name. And Marijuana's mom told her that your name will take you around the world. I'm going to give you a name that's going to make you famous. And that is literally true. If you check out Marijuana Pepsi Jackson, there is a lot of information about her online. She became an educator and did become somewhat famous. When we look at scripture, we also find that there are some interesting names in the Bible. And sometimes those names are names for God. There is a name for God that you may not be too familiar with. It's found in Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, eternity whose name is holy. Did you know that God's name, among other names, is holy? That's what the prophet says. When we think about God being named or identified as holy, that's telling us that he's special. Saying that God is holy tells us that he is separate from anyone and anything else. There is a related text which makes the point this way. First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2, there is none holy as Jehovah. In other words, God is once again in this distinct category. For there is none besides thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Then you have in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 15 and verse 4, who shall not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou only art holy. There is this emphasis on God. In fact, it's been said that there is more about the holiness of God in scripture than the love of God. And that is an amazing consideration. People, when they think about God, they often emphasize the love of God, and certainly that is part of his nature, but God is never identified as far as his name, love. But his name is specifically referred to as holy in the Old Testament. Now, when we think about God's holiness, if we explore the holiness of God, we really find that there are two major points associated with God's holiness. There is, of course, the moral sense, the moral aspect of that. When we think about the holiness of God, that means that he is the opposite of sin. He, to put it bluntly, cannot tolerate sin. He cannot sin. God's holiness means that he is one who is absolutely pure. The other aspect of God's holiness, and this is where we want to begin, simply means that God is glorious. God is the one who has all majesty. He is the one who is deserving all, of all honor. And that's why in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2, you see the emphasis there, there is none like you. A lot of people can receive glory. A lot of people can receive honor. And sometimes as you think about the honor that is bestowed upon someone, it just seems like it never stops. John makes that same point in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 4 that we noted as well. When we think about the glory of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God, it is beyond anything that we are able to conceive of. If we could take all the glory in the world, if we could take all the glory in the universe, it still would not be sufficient to describe the holiness of God, at least from the standpoint of God's glory. Now, that's difficult for us to imagine. It's difficult for any preacher to explain, let alone fully explain. And when we think about the unsaved, generally speaking, they don't give a lot of consideration to that. When we think about human beings, oftentimes when they think about God, they look at him in terms of someone who is less powerful than civil or human government. If the world has many issues, God perhaps is seen as the one who is pretty much powerless. He's not able to do anything. He's falling down on the job. In the minds of others, there is no great God in the heavens. Many see God as really not much more powerful than man. God has been dethroned in the minds of many. But even though that is true for a lot of people, you still find that God is still on the throne. 
His word has been attacked by a lot of people as far as claims of contradictions. His character has sometimes been ridiculed, perhaps even by Bible-believing people, and certainly not a few have doubted the very power of God. Scripture warns us against all of those ideas by telling us about the holiness of God. There are different snapshots in Scripture. We could go back to several passages in the Old Testament. We can look at several in the New Testament, especially in the early chapters of Revelation. And we can get some quick pictures, some visuals, if you will, of God's holiness. The one that I want to focus on comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. The prophet said, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. This is a vision. Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. Now here is God, he is pictured as having a train or a robe. Have you ever seen a bride's train? Maybe if you are a woman and you got married, you can remember back to your wedding day and you would say that I had a long train or a long bride. I did a little looking out of curiosity. Do you know that the world record for a bride's train is more than 26,000 feet long? 26,000 feet plus. This train was so long, it would just about cover Mount Everest. The train was made back in 2017. It was made in France, and it's now in the Guinness Book of World Records. Now, if I were hearing that, I'd be thinking, I'd like to see if that guy can show me a picture. There it is. It is just a massive train. Princess Diana got off easy. She had a 25-foot train with a veil that took up 45 yards. Now, God is spirit, John chapter 4 and verse 24. But in Isaiah chapter 6, God is pictured as having a train which literally fills a temple, and we would expect a giant temple in the vision. The seraphim are creatures without sin. But as you look at Isaiah chapter 6, you find an interesting detail about these creatures. The Bible says they covered their feet. I don't know if you've ever noticed that detail or not. But the image is that the magnificence of God, the holiness of God, the greatness of God, it is just so far off the scale that these creatures who are without sin, they are not willing to let their feet touch the ground. God is that great. There are times in life when we're exposed to something and we say, I, I better not touch that. Or I better not go in there. Or I might break that. I don't feel comfortable going in there. So I'm going to just say that that's off limits for me. God's holiness is kind of like that, especially when you think about sinful men. In some ways, God's holiness is scary. It is, from a human perspective, unless something else is involved that we'll get to a little bit later, it is terrifying. As you go back again to what we have in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2 and Revelation chapter 15 and verse 4, notice what's said. Who shall not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? Well, the book of Revelation answers that question. As you read through the book, you find that there were some people, in this case, a lot of people in ancient Rome, who did not fear God. There were some other nations in the first part of the first century and for a few following centuries that did not fear God. Rome thought that they could kill, the, Rome thought that they could hurt other Christians, and that was going to be just fine. And as you read Revelation 2 and 3, you find the seven churches of Asia. There were even some Christians in those congregations who did not have a strong fear for God and his holiness. There were some brethren, they were more concerned about Rome and the beasts that we read about in Revelation chapter 13 than God. But John in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 4 said, A time is coming, the day is going to come when people from all nations will recognize the holiness, the majesty, the power of God. He said, For all the nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been made manifest. 
we think about the failure to recognize God for his holiness, for his greatness, for his glory, that is still a problem. In fact, there are some schools, oftentimes denominational schools, that train men to preach, and they openly doubt and question the holiness of God. There are people who talk about God in such a way where they, they act like God is no big deal. God and his will are sometimes looked at as not being relevant in modern society. Even Christians can kind of develop a ho-hum attitude towards God. We can be for a Christian for a number of years, and we, at some point, just stop thinking about God in the terms that we're looking at tonight. When we look at Scripture, though, the holiness of God, it is an amazing thing, and it is also a frightening thing. Isaiah was a prophet. You would think as a prophet of God, even though it was before Jesus came into the world, you would think that he would know a few things about his maker. Isaiah, though, when he comes face to face with his vision as far as God and his holiness, we find a reaction a little after we get to Isaiah 6 and verse 3. But in Isaiah 6, 3, we find, first of all, the reaction of the seraphim. And one cried to another and said, holy, 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 in triplicate is Jehovah of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now imagine, if you will, receiving this divine vision about holiness. And we have in this vision these seraphim. Seraphim are not willing to put their feet on the ground, and they have three times this utterance of holiness. So men may not often see God for who he is, his glory, his power, his honor. But these creatures that are in his presence, they certainly did. It's interesting that holy is um, repeated three times. That couldn't be symbolic. It could be that they use the triplicate to emphasize that God is completely holy. That from the standpoint of his glory, there is nothing that could be added to it. It would be impossible to somehow go beyond the glory that he has. Certainly there is no impurity when it comes to God. God is the epitome of glory. Moving down now to what we have as far as a further description in verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold. That is, this temple where the train of God is, the foundations of that structure, they shook at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. The voices of the seraphim, as they proclaim the holiness of God, their voices begin to shake the temple. So these are claims that are not being whispered. These are claims which are not being spoken softly. But these claims are like claps of thunder. It's like they're, they're shouting at the top of the voice. And the cloud and the smoke further emphasize the glory of God. Isaiah is exposed to this. And as a man, even though he was a servant of God, here's his reaction. Verse 5. Then said I, woe is me, exclamation mark, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the King, Jehovah of hosts. You see, when it comes to the holiness of God, this greatness, this glory, this magnificence of God, it is so frightening to man that unless God intervenes, it is beyond terrifying. It is beyond frightening. There are people in life who say, I am scared to death by an activity. Maybe you are someone or maybe you've met someone who said, I am terrified to get up and speak in public. And that can be a real fear. There are some other people, they would say, I am terrified of heights. Don't get me into a high building. Other people would say that they're scared about going to the dentist. Or they're frightened by snakes, spiders, mice, flying in a plane or being in an enclosed space. People have fears of all kinds of things. But when we start talking about the holiness, the magnificence of God, the uniqueness of God, it is for the people who are not in a right relationship with God the most terrifying thing beyond our ability to fully comprehend. God is the scariest of all unless he somehow intervenes. And a time is coming 
when all people are going to meet him. A time is coming when all people will stand in the very presence of God. And if they're not in the right relationship with God, they will be beyond terrified. But thankfully, it's possible to be in the presence of God and not be filled with terror. In the book of Habakkuk, and we're going to turn over to Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, God is pictured as having eyes. That, of course, is not literal. God is spirit, as we said from John chapter 4 and verse 24. But Habakkuk uses this language to help us understand the point a little bit better. And he says that God cannot look upon wrong. Now, someone says, well, I thought that God knows everything. He does. But here, as you think about the point that's being made, he cannot look upon wrong in the sense that he cannot tolerate it. He cannot fellowship it. He cannot have a part in what is contrary to his nature. That is, he can't be involved with sin. Isaiah talked about this about 700 years before Jesus came into the world. In Isaiah 59 and verse 2, he said, you have sin. And he says, your iniquities, your sins have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin separates man from God. Sin cuts us off from God. And it is as if God hides his face. In Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 29, the Bible says that God is far from the wicked. Now someone says, well, that doesn't make sense to me. You recently said in a lesson that God is in all places and he is present in all places at all times. And that's true. Well, if he's present in all places at all times, how can God be far away from the wicked? He's far away from the wicked in the sense of Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2. He's not going to have fellowship with people because of sin. When people are guilty of sin and they are unforgiven as far as their accountability with that sin, they are beyond offensive to God. Paul described the point this way in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. He said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hinder the truth in unrighteousness. The holiness of God, the greatness of God, and the sinfulness of men, they cannot be reconciled, at least by mankind. They're too different. From time to time, I don't know if you see this or not in the news, there are stories about plastic garbage bags. Some states recently have tried to ban plastic garbage bags that are uh, often given away by stores or some places charge for them. Over the past couple of years, there have been some states which have tried to encourage people to use reusable bags. And that sounds good. Like about a lot of other ideas from the government, a proposal might sound like this is a real winner. But about a dozen years ago, there was a study conducted that concluded that 99% of the reusable bags that people use for groceries have bad bacteria. And one of the stories that surfaced, this was back in 2019, there were nine members of a soccer team who contacted, or contracted rather, a virus from a bag stored in a bathroom. Somebody had stored their reusable bag in a bathroom and there was bad bacteria from that. They took it to the store and then all of the soccer people got sick. You know, people don't want grocery bags filled with bad bacteria. People don't want to take grocery bags to the store which have deadly bacteria in it. Nobody wants that. Well, in a similar way, God says, I don't want and I will not let people who are sinful people into my presence. My glory, my magnificence, my honor, my character, those things prevent that. It's simply not possible. So sin and holiness are like two contradictory positions which cannot be reconciled. There are two parties which it seems like it's impossible for them to come together. If there is going to be some kind of solution, it cannot come from man. We created the problem and we don't have the tools to fix the problem. Because of sin, Isaiah 59 and verse 2, we need something like a bridge back to God. Well, does that exist? Yes, it does. And the Bible says that Jesus is that bridge. 
as we recently looked at in our Galatians class, Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time came, God looked down through human history and he said, it is at this moment in human history and it is at this place in human history that I'm going to send Jesus into the world. As we pointed out from the Galatians class, Jesus came from God. He came out of God. He was part, if you will, God's fabric, God's nature. He was part of God's character. And God said, part of my essence is going to be sent to the world and live a perfect life. Had Jesus come to this earth and he had lived a perfect life and died of natural causes, he would have died as a great person. And perhaps today we'd still be remembering him as a great person. But the Bible says that Jesus did more than come and live a perfect life. He also died a sacrificial death. Jesus came and laid down his life for the sins of mankind. If we decide to become a Christian, we access the benefits of Jesus' death. And God says, if you do that, here's what I want from you. And what we've looked at thus far, this information should not be a surprise to us because of that. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we, that would be Christians, we should be holy. And then if that's not enough, Paul went on to say that we should be without blemish. Every single thing that made us an enemy of God, every single thing which would have caused us to be in absolute fear and terror before the great God who has all majesty and power is wiped away by Christ if we become a Christian. For the person who becomes a child of God, there is no need to have that kind of fear and terror that was experienced by Isaiah. Peter also dealt with this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He said, but like as he who called you is holy. Well, we've already seen that with God. Be ye yourselves also holy in all manner of living. Peter said, as you think about the Christian life, whatever is involved in the Christian life, in all manner of living, God wants you to be holy. And then he gives a reason in verse 16. Because it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. If God is holy as we looked at earlier and the Bible affirms, remember his name is holy. That implies that the Christian should also seek to be holy in all of his or her ways. Now someone says, well, what does that mean for me? Being a holy person sounds kind of scary. Well, it's not designed to be frightening. As we think about living the holy life, that involves the speech that we looked at this morning and last week. As we think about being a holy person, that means that we think about the thoughts that we have. And we try to ensure that those thoughts are consistent with what we find in Scripture. In addition to our speech, in addition to our thoughts, this also applies to our actions. In way after way, every aspect that Peter says, all manner of living, we want to live a holy life. Jude, in verse 20, talked about having the most holy faith. If you were to look at holiness in terms of the Old Testament, you could go back to the book of Leviticus. If you want to know what that book of Leviticus is about, there's a lot of stuff in there that's a little difficult to sort through. But basically, the book of Leviticus is about holiness. God wanted his people to be holy. One of the big parts of holiness, and this is a part that a lot of people don't get when it comes to the Christian faith, is that God wants us to become uncomfortable with sin. We don't hear that preached a lot. We don't hear that talked about a lot. A lot of people give the impression that, well, sin's out there. Everybody does it, so we should be just fine with it. But God says, if you want to be a holy person, you need to become uncomfortable with sin. Holy people are not, or at least they should not be comfortable with sin. The world doesn't get too upset about that because everybody's doing it. The world says, well, unless I'm going to be arrested, unless I'm going to go to prison, it doesn't bother me too much. Holiness, as we think about it, it means that we try to develop habits where we learn to love what God loves and we begin to hate or despise and avoid what God hates. 
Seeking holiness means that we want to do our best to keep every command of God and avoid every sin that we can possibly avoid. Holiness, when it comes to living the Christian life, it means that we want to try to have more joy when it comes to living for God than living for the things of this world. Most of the people in life will not live their life that way. And that's been proven for the last 2,000 years. Most will say, I will be a good person. I'm willing to go that far. Don't want to go to prison. Don't want to lose my job. Don't want to lose my family. Don't want to mess up my life. So I'll be good in terms of society. But that holiness stuff, no, that's not for me. What if there were a verse in the Bible which said without holiness will not go to heaven? Do you think that would change the minds of some people when it comes to this subject? Well, maybe not. But let's see if we can find such a verse. Over in the book of Hebrews, this is a King James translation, Hebrews 12 and verse 14, follow peace with all men. A lot of people would say, well, I'm good with that. It's good to be a peaceable person. But then there's this. And holiness. If you don't have that, holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That's pretty clear. God says, if you are not willing to seek holiness, you will not be in heaven. No holiness, no eternal life. Thankfully, holiness does not mean perfection. A lot of people, I think, have come away with that idea when we think about the Christian life. Someone says, well, you just have to be a goody two-shoes and do everything right. No. God knows we're going to mess up. He knows that we need that bridge which was made by Jesus. But it does say the bridge is here. It's for every person. But I do call you to live a life which is a holy life because I am holy. I don't know just how glorious God is. It's beyond my ability. It's beyond the ability of any man to comprehend. But Jesus made it clear. He said it is worth everything you have. It is worth your life. It is worth every daily struggle that you go through to one day see and for eternity spend forever with the holy God. Do you want that? Do you want that more than anything else? If not, hopefully you'll reconsider that this week. If you're someone who does want that, maybe you got on the right path for a period of time and you've gotten off and you're thinking, my life doesn't look too holy as I go back and think about the last week, month, or year. You can come back. If we can help you when it comes to holiness... And we can help you tonight becoming a Christian, faith, repentance, confession, baptism, and then begin living that life. Or if we can help restore you or age in some other way, we'd like to help you write your relationship with God and do that now as we stand and sing.